0: Glad you're here. If you wouldn't mind, grab your Bible and meet me in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We take this next step in our consideration of the afterlife. What comes next? I heard the story of three buddies that were talking. They're sort of talking about life and the things that mattered most, things that didn't matter at all. One of them said to the other two, said, so really now at your funeral, what would you like people to say about you? first guy says, well, I'd like them to say that I was a kind person, a humanitarian, that I really helped people in our community. And they all agreed that would, that would be a good thing to say about you at your, or your funeral. And the second guy said, well, I want them to say about me that I was a good husband, a good father, a good family man, that I really set a great example for my children to follow. that good. That'd be great if people could say that about you at your funeral. And the third guy said, well, I'll tell you what I want them to say at my funeral. I want them to say... Hey, he's moving. <laughs> Which if you don't have hope for the afterlife might not be a bad thing for them to say at your funeral. If you don't have anything after to live for. The church of Corinth as you know was a bit of a problem for Paul, although he loved them deeply and spent much of his time there, a good bit of his ministry in the city and at the church of Corinth, and then afterwards writing these letters to sort of correct some issues and answer some questions that they were having along the way. And one of those questions was, afterlife, life, what next? And we have this mountain peak in the New Testament of chapter 15 with regards to the resurrection. Not a foreign topic by any means. We know that Job asked the question in one of the oldest books in the Old Testament if a man dies, if he goes down to the grave, if he's buried, can he live again? There was a hopefulness, a yearning, a desire in, in Job going all the way back to the very beginning of recorded history, biblically speaking. And we know where that comes from. Solomon tells us that God has put eternity in the hearts of man, meaning that there's a desire within us for the more beyond us. Uh, there is more beyond the uh, the life that we know and the, the life that we live, there has to be. That's what God put in us, called that God-shaped void you've heard us say. And it's a desire that is innate and naturally within us and can only be satisfied by God himself through a relationship with Jesus Christ. We see it in the teachings of Jesus himself last week, John chapter 11, when two sisters had lost a dear brother to death, or so they supposed. And that was it, or so they thought, until Jesus said, uh, I am the resurrection and the life. I am, Jesus said. If a man dies, yet shall he live. But if a man believes in me, lives, dies, yet shall he live. He'll never die. Jesus said, hey, I'm, I'm the satisfaction of that yearning and desire deep within your heart. I am, Jesus said, the resurrection and the life. Paul now takes us to a A real specific, very practical working out and application of what happens next. In fact, he's answering some questions here. We can't answer all the questions they're asking or all that he addressed. But there are four specific ones today I think we can take care of. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the first question is this. So what is the good news after all? What is the good news? Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. That's good news, by the way. Gospel is good news. That's what the word means. It's the good news. And sometimes you just need to be reminded that there is some good news. In a world of not so good news and oftentimes very bad news, and the news of our approaching demise, of the undoing of our physical bodies, and of death is not good news. I'm just telling you, most people don't hear you're going to die and think, oh, how nice, what good news you bring to me today. And yet there is good news in the very face of the worst of situations. What the world would consider to be the undoing of all, the end of everything, that's it. That's bad news. Paul said, "Uh, let me remind you of the good news. I remind you, brothers, of the gospel, the good news that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved. If you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, I mean, uh, unless you really didn't believe, the gospel, the good news. For I delivered, verse 3 says, to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's good news, folks. I don't know if you've been reminded lately that Jesus came from heaven, God wrapped in flesh, Emmanuel, with us to rescue us from ourselves. And from our sin. That's the problem, as you know. John 3, 16. You're well familiar with that, I'm sure. For God so loved the world. Put your name in there. God so loved you, me. God so loved us, the world. That He gave His one and only Son. There's the sending of His Son to rescue us, to redeem us. That whosoever believes in Him should not perish. Listen, God's will is not for you and I to perish. God's want is not for you to spend an eternity separated from Him And from His presence, God's will is that you have eternal or everlasting life. That's why God sent Jesus for you and for me. That's good news. I mean, can you imagine the holiness of God? How easy it would have been perhaps for someone that holy in the sense just to say, you know what, forget it all. I'm going to go over here and start a whole other galaxy and just forget all these humans. They're just wormy, they're wild, they're rebellious. But no, God came looking. Even in our sinfulness, God came for us. That for is a really important word. In fact, in the text, I would encourage you to underline the word for, that Christ died for our sins. For our sins. That's a really important word. Reminds me of 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 21. For our sake, he made him, God made Jesus to be or to become sin. Who knew no sin. So that in Him, in Jesus, we, you and me, might become the righteousness of God. That's such an important biblical concept. That's such an important Christian foundation to our faith. That Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. A debt we owed, but that He paid. A debt we couldn't pay, but that He'd settled in full. Jesus came, he lived, he died for our sins. And the Bible says, and he was raised again. Raised again. That's an incredibly, wonderfully good news thing to say. That he died for our sins according to the scripture. That he was buried. And buried accentuates the fact that he died. There was a substitutionary atonement by virtue of the death of Jesus in our place. He was buried. You don't bury alive people. You don't bury people who don't feel well. You don't bury people who don't look well. You don't bury people who are sick or even in a coma. they got to be gone, dead. Jesus died for our sins, was buried, but that's not the end of the story. But was raised again on the third day. Now, I know it's not technically Easter yet, but then again, why do we wait for one Sunday a year to celebrate his resurrection? Shouldn't that be an every Sunday ordeal? That the tomb is empty, he's not here? He is risen as he said. Don't wait to celebrate. Listen to me. Resurrection Sunday is every day of a Christian's life because it changes our world, our perspective, our hearts, our lives, our future. Our everything changes in light of this reality. He is not here. He is risen as he said. Well, that's the best news in the world. You couldn't get any better news than that. That Jesus died for our sins, was buried and raised again according to the Scriptures. And if you have any doubts or reservations, if you're from Missouri and you need to be shown or told someone who saw... I hear mummering. Is somebody from actually from Missouri? <laughs> Jesus showed himself. Look what the Scripture says in verse 5. And that he appeared. This is good news too. Not only that he died for sins, was buried, raised again that he then appeared, and listen to this list of people he appeared to, Cephas or Peter, the twelve, the apostles, then to more than 500 brothers at one time. And Paul's writing in the window of time where many of those people were still walking the earth and breathing earth's air, meaning, you want to ask them, go ahead, they're still alive. Look what he says, more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, Though some have fallen asleep, they're not all alive, but there are enough of them that if you want to know what happened, if you want to hear an eyewitness testimony, if you want to look somebody in the eye and ask them this question, did you see Jesus alive after you saw Jesus dead, there are plenty walking around that you go and ask. Then he appeared to James. James. Well, in all likelihood, that's James, the brother of Jesus, who the Gospels tell us didn't believe in Jesus. Now, here's a great, great point headed towards Resurrection Sunday. It's one thing for people that love you and want to believe you. It's another thing for people that think you're cuckoo and don't want to believe a thing you say. And James thought his brother Jesus was nuts. Now, I'm paraphrasing a little bit. But the Bible certainly tells us in the Gospels that James and his immediate family members thought Jesus was off his rocker and tried to reel him back in. But suddenly, James not only becomes a believer but the leader of the Jerusalem church. What happened to change that man's life? I'm telling you, he met Jesus after the resurrection. He appeared to James and then all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, Paul says. Now... You think James was a hard sell. You think James had a hard time coming around to the idea of who this Jesus is and really is and really was. Paul was in the business of persecuting Christians and running the church out of town. And making sure these followers of the way lost their way and never had an opportunity to tell the story of Jesus. He was a rising star in the religious institution. And he was earning his credit as it were by persecuting the church. And followers of Jesus, until he met Jesus alive on the road to Damascus. We'll sell, tell more of his story in the coming weeks. But you got to know, this major life change and transition in Paul's life, who was Saul, cost him everything this world has to offer. Cost him his future. It cost him his ambition. It cost him his family, the respect of the organization, the institution that he was raised to serve and to lead. It cost him everything. Now let me just tell you something. People don't make those kinds of fundamental life-changing decisions unless they have something to base that decision on. Saul, who became Paul, became Paul because he met Jesus. Well, if you have any doubts, as Paul writes, there are plenty of people you can go and ask. By the way, we have the recorded history. Here it is. It proves, doesn't it, that Jesus is who he says he is. If these things happened and there he was, it proves that he, his sacrifice was sufficient to satisfy the debt, the penalty, the payment for our sins. It, it proves sin's debt has been paid. If he's come through death as a substitutionary atonement for us and came to life again, then sin's debt has been overly satisfied all sufficiency of Jesus Christ it's true then that he has power over sin death and the grave it's true and his promises are true which means he'll keep his promises to you and to me that's good news I'm telling you we have so much even in the face of death even at the very end of our lives and of everything that we know we have so much more to hope for to believe in and yes even to look forward to well, let's hit pause for a moment more of this of course in the coming weeks as we continue in this study of resurrection and the afterlife. But listen, let me say one more time if you're waiting two more weeks to celebrate, don't wait. To celebrate Jesus is alive. Let me ask a second question that they must have been asking in Corinth. And that is this, is the resurrection then, Paul, you Christian folk, is the resurrection real? And if it's real or not, does it even matter? Does it really matter? If the resurrection happened. It seems to have been the question. If not the outright objection in Corinth in that day. Listen to verse 12. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead. How can some of you say. That there is no resurrection of the dead. But if there is no resurrection of the dead. Then not even Christ has been raised. You can see Corinth. We have a problem. You thought that statement originated in Houston, didn't you? Mm Mm-mm. Corinth. When people in the town and people in the community and even people in the church begin to say, I don't know about this whole resurrection thing. I'm not too sure about what you're saying is going to happen. I don't know 100% if what you're saying happened with Jesus happened but don't worry I'm not even sure whether it did or didn't it matters at all and begin to spiritualize this whole experience deny perhaps the power and the majesty and the miracle working ability of our God and no surprise Corinth is under a heavy Greek philosophy influence that viewed the body the physical the natural as a prison of the soul and material was evil Uh, Immaterial spirit was good, and so a typical Greek philosopher longed to be free of this body, set free into eternity as some disembodied spirit in some faraway hunting grounds. That was their longing. The very idea that we would be raised again in this physical body to live in the confines of a material body was grotesque to them. I mean, we have to live in this prison all of our lives. You're saying we're going to live in a prison all of eternity? And they said, no, thank you. In fact, if you read Acts 17, you'll see when Paul preached the resurrection at Athens, which is just down the street from Corinth and under the same influences of Greek philosophy, they mocked him and laughed at him because he used the word resurrection in the context of the bodily resurrection of Jesus. So Corinth objects to resurrection and at the very least questions its relevance and whether or not in fact it matters. Well, let's let Paul answer the question in a word without question. Yes, it matters that it's real and that it happened. Listen to verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God. We are liars because we testified about God that He has raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. I mean, you can't separate these two facts. Resurrection is resurrection. If the dead aren't raised, then Christ wasn't raised. So this is a big deal, Paul writes. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins, Paul writes. To people who might question resurrection and whether or not it even matters. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they too, they've perished. They're lost. No hope. In Christ we have hope. If in this life only, we are of all people, Paul writes, most to be pitied. Meaning... No resurrection. Our faith is vain. We're wasting our time. This is pointless. We're liars because we say something happened that just naturally doesn't happen. And how pitiful we are that our lives are still steeped in the sin that condemns us. And our loved ones are gone having died in their sin. And there is no hope for them. They are done for. And this is it for you and me. When it's over, it's over. When you're dead, you're dead. When you're in the ground, you're gone. How pitiful. How pitiful, if there is no resurrection from the dead, that we should live our lives with a vain and futile hope in nothing. or In a God who can't deliver even on His promises. What's Paul saying with his answer? Oh yes, resurrection not only is real, but it really, really matters. Because without the resurrection, folks, we have nothing. You see, the gospel is completed with the statement and... On the third day, raised again. The gospel is not the gospel because Jesus died on the cross. Lots of people died on crosses in this day and time. but The gospel comes full circle. A bow is put on it and it's handed to you in power, in the power of God, with the words. And on the third day, Jesus was raised again. The resurrection is relevant. It matters. It matters means everything and yet it's shocking that even today in our time the people who wouldn't admit to Succumbing to Greek philosophies or any philosophies outside of scripture, especially in the church, that we'd have a a, a think tank of scholars who in previous decades have gotten together to research and to study and to discover the real historical Jesus. Who was Jesus really? We hear that and we go, Oh, that's a great endeavor. Wonderful. That's great. Let's find out who the real Jesus is. Well, what you would have to know about this search for the historical Jesus and so such as this, this is the idea here is really to to take what we have in the gospel records and to strip away everything essentially that is Supposedly added to the story by his followers who mythologized his life, meaning the miracles, those didn't really happen. We just wanted to believe in a Jesus who could do those sorts of things. And you know, when you get out your knife and you start carving away at the life and deeds of Jesus to get down to what you perceive and conceive to be the actual historical Jewish man named Jesus of Nazareth, you know what you got left? Not much. But don't worry. Because he was much more than a man. He was God. He is God. And Paul writes, because he is who he is, he did what he said he would do. Then you can trust in everything else he ever said. The resurrection, is it real? Yes. Is it really important? Yes. Does it really matter? Yes. Is it relevant? Most certainly In spite of what those like Marcus Borg, one of the leaders of that movement, said, he said when he was a child he believed in the resurrection of Jesus. He just took it at face value. But now he's more mature and he's grown up and gotten some degrees and has come to the conclusion that actually the resurrection is not all that important because whether or not Jesus was bodily raised, it's sort of irrelevant. Because he said some really wonderful things, you know. And he was a very kind person and a very loving leader. He really made a difference with his life. You don't need the resurrection. Hold on a minute. If anybody comes up to you tomorrow at lunch or over a coffee break or stops by your office or desk on their way somewhere and says, you know that whole resurrection thing ain't that big of a deal after all. You say, stop! Stop right there. You, you, don't, you, you cannot dismiss the resurrection and keep Christianity cannot dismiss the resurrection and keep salvation, forgiveness, healing, new life, hope for the future. You cannot throw resurrection out as irrelevant and have anything left to get happy about. Nothing is left. In fact, I'll never forget hearing the story of A.H. Ackley. Maybe you remember his first name was Alfred. He was a Presbyterian pastor, but he had a little habit. I should say a hobby. He loved to write songs. In fact, he He wrote hundreds of hymns, many of which we still sing. One of them he wrote after a Sunday morning experience when he was getting ready to go to church to preach. And somebody on the radio on that particular Sunday morning was spouting off about something and came with the statement that the resurrection isn't that big of a deal. We still have Jesus whether he was bodily raised or not. And this guy yelled in his house, That's a lie! Because you know sometimes preachers just talk back to the radio or the television and he did and his wife heard him and the whole thing and she said you should write a song about that honey and he did and do you know the song that alfred h ackley wrote in response to the lie he heard a supposed christian scholar say on supposed christian radio on sunday morning do you know what he wrote he wrote these words i serve a risen savior he's in the world today i know that he is living whatever men may say i see his hand of mercy i hear his voice of cheer And just the time I need him, he's always near. You know it? He lives, he lives, Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, he lives, salvation to impart. You know how music leaders have to do that? You asked me how I know He lives. He lives within my heart. Hey, the next time someone says to you, that whole resurrection thing isn't all that important after all, don't die on that hill, you sing that song or write one better. It matters. Question number three. So, if this gospel, this good news includes the good news of his resurrection and that is a really big deal that you cannot exclude, then let's get down to the practical side of this. Question number three, how then does God raise a truly dead body? Look at verse 35. They must have asked that question. But someone will ask, see how I know, someone will ask, how are the dead raised? How does this work? How's that happen? With what kind of body do they come? Now, this is a skeptic's question, isn't it? Because if you can keep the resurrection just in the sort of mythological sense, if you can just keep it sort of in the fairy tale sense, then the specifics don't matter, and the practical aspect of this is really not challenging. But when you say, no, no, wait a minute, Jesus was bodily raised from the grave... And that's a really big deal. It's important keystone, capstone, foundational stone aspect of the gospel. And it really, really matters that he did. Now you've got to tell me how that works. How does that work? How are the dead raised? What kind of body do they have after they are raised? Do you know that two-thirds, according to a Barnes study in 2016... Two-thirds of people who say they believe in the resurrection. You with me? These aren't people who say, I don't believe in it. They say, I believe in resurrection. I believe in an afterlife. I believe in resurrection. Two out of three of the people who say they believe it say that they also believe they will not have a body after the resurrection. Two-thirds. Now, what kind of people would you typically expect to say, I believe in resurrection? What kind of people? Atheist, huh? Christian people would be at the big, big part of that, wouldn't you think? Now, now there are others to be sure. And the sad thing is, is apparently some Christians share some ideas with non-Christian groups with regard not only to the resurrection, but the afterlife. If they say, by a score of two out of three, nobody involved, meaning they would espouse a spiritual resurrection. But I want to be clear what we're talking about here. You have to be very clear what we're talking about. We are talking about bodily, physical, material resurrection from the dead. Don't discount that. Don't set that aside. Do not say that doesn't matter. Let me tell you something. That matters in a really big way. Paul, in fact, was going to address this. Jesus, in fact, addressed this. Listen to what he said in Luke 24, verse 39. Jesus said, it is I myself, not another someone, not another self, not a different self. It's I myself, Jesus said, touch me and see. And then listen to what Jesus said to his disciples. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Is the bodily resurrection of Jesus a part of the historical record? Of course it is. And there he stood before them, a body, not a ghost, with flesh and bones... Physical, material resurrection. If Jesus had only experienced a spiritual resurrection as many other faith groups, including some pseudo-Christian faith groups, believe that Jesus' resurrection was only a spiritual resurrection, then why in the world, pray tell, was his body in material not in the tomb when they rolled the stone away? You cannot say, according to the Scriptures, He is not here, He is risen, as He said. Look to see where His body lays. Not here. If it was a spiritual resurrection, why is the body gone? Oh no. Clearly, Jesus' resurrection was a physical, material resurrection of the body that He possessed before He died on the cross. The challenge at Corinth is, philosophically, they're having a hard time getting their minds around how a dead body comes back to life again. They're thinking in the natural. They're trying to be practical, but they're so practical, they're practically losing it here. Because in their minds, I suppose, what they're seeing here in this teaching is that if God, in fact, raises dead people back to life again, we have what we now call, by theater standards, as a zombie apocalypse. We got a bunch of bodies badly in decay and well towards decomposition walking around the streets of Jerusalem preaching some gospel message, like that's gonna draw a crowd. Like that's gonna get really people come and believe, this, believe look at me, hey, look at me, you know, my nose is gone, like look at me. I'm telling you, in, in Greek philosophy, in this conversation, we're dealing with people who just cannot get their minds around how this is even possible. It's not natural. It doesn't happen. Uh, By the way, look at verse 36. You've got to get this. You foolish person. I'm reading. You foolish person, Paul writes. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. So, expanding now their ability to think through this, that in fact, yes, death... Is a necessary prerequisite to resurrection. That's a part of the conversation. Surely we're talking about dead bodies coming back to life again. And no, that's not natural. You say the laws of nature prohibit such, it just doesn't happen. So it didn't happen. But wait a minute, I've got to remind you of something. That God doesn't exist within our system or laws, that God is supra nature, natural, supernatural. And God does not obey the laws of our natural world. The laws of our natural world obey God, who wrote those laws. Listen, just think practically about this for a moment. God exists outside of our understanding. He exists outside of our confining limitations. He exists beyond, above, outside of our limitations. Can I just say, if God can't do resurrection, He's not God. It doesn't matter anyway. But if there is a God, then most certainly God would have to be able to do things we do not naturally expect or see. In other words, what I'm telling you is is God is either a God of miracles or He's not a God. You put these two together, you start to think through, okay, so wait a minute, what does that mean? What does that mean for somebody who died yesterday, two days ago, ten days ago? What about ten years ago? What about ten decades ago? What about ten centuries ago? What about two thousand years ago? The smart Corinthians with this Greek philosophical mindset are processing through all the possibilities, the costs, the consequences. How's that work? Let me be at the risk of being a little more practical and. Gruff that maybe perhaps one or two of you uh, would appreciate, maybe all of you. But what they're saying here is is you do understand that death has completely taken over here. That these bodies that you say are going to someday be resurrected will be completely decomposed. Cells scattered over centuries of time. Dust to dust, ashes to ashes. They're dirt. They're gone. Now how are you going to pull that off? I mean, it's reasonable to think that someone died yesterday or two days ago could be raised again. But a thousand years ago? Come on, you've got to be joking me. But think for that just a moment. And look at verse 37 to help you along. What you sow is not the body that is to be. It's not the same body in the sense, though it is the same in the sense of but a bare kernel. Perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as He has chosen. And to each kind of seed, its own body. Meaning there is continuity and consistency in the seed that goes into the ground with the fruit of that seed that comes out of the ground. That's the process. Jesus even said, unless a seed dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it brings forth fruit. It's the same, same idea here. What you put into the ground is not exactly what's coming out of the ground. It is like that seed. But note this, that God is able to make of a seed something glorious. You see this in nature all around you. That what goes into the ground isn't exactly what comes out of the ground, but God takes what is sown into the ground and makes what is sown in the ground something really amazing. Something, if you didn't know any better and you just looked at that seed and somebody said, you know, you know what that seed is? That's a tree under the shade of which you will sit and enjoy your years for years and years. And you'd say, no. So I say, in this seed, if you put this seed in the ground and you water it and you take care of it, out of, out of the ground in a few months is going to come a plant that's going to provide for you food, fruit vegetables that will sustain you and bless you for years to come. You you would say, eh, I don't see it. It's the same idea as when we look sadly into the coffin at the funeral of our loved ones and, and we see what is no more now than a seed, but that has the potential by the power of God to become something so much more glorious than what we see. In Corinth, Paul is bringing them up to the miraculous side of thinking to remind them what I believe, whether buried or burned, drowned or devoured, doesn't matter. Listen, the God of the universe who created all of us knows exactly where all of us are at any moment in time, down to the smallest atom or molecule. And let me tell you something else. The same God can call it all back together again and put it all back together again and bring something from the seed sown in the ground, glorious. That's, frankly, folks, what resurrection is. The timing is irrelevant. It's what God does with the seed that is incredibly amazing, wonderful, and glorious. No problem, if you don't mind me saying, God can always recompose even the decomposed. From dust, dirt, and distance, To make for us and to give to us a perfectly raised, fully restored, glorious, and eternal body. God can do that. Or He's not God. Truly, it's just as simple as that. And listen to me. If nothing remains of you, if nothing remains of your loved ones, if nothing remains of your ancestors that you and I can go and gather in a box and say, here it is, if nothing remains of you and me, know this. The God who made you and me kept a blueprint. And that's all He needs to make all He intends you to be for all of eternity. How does God raise a truly dead body? Miraculously, of course. And He can use whatever there is to accomplish that. Fourth and last question, what should then it mean to us? What should resurrection mean? Is there a practical application of this for us? Yes, indeed. In verse 20, in fact, as we continue to read, I'll roll you back just a bit to include this. Because, maybe you'll jot that word down. What should it mean to me? Because Christ was raised, we'll also be raised. See, this isn't just about Jesus or Jesus' disciples or the early church or the church fathers or the martyrs through the ages of church history or even our loved ones and former Sunday school teachers and pastors that we love dearly but who have died. This isn't just about them. This is about us. Because Christ was raised, we'll also be raised. Verse 20, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, hallelujah, as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, meaning it's the first event of its kind, but not the last. His was first, but the first of many. That's what first fruit means. It means that it is the first of the field of harvest that wraps up the whole harvest field with it and brings it in. It means it won't live, last, or remain alone. No, no, there's a lot more to come in answer to that question. The hope that we have for our resurrection is based on the fact of His resurrection because He was first, but not the last. Because He was raised, we'll be, in the only way we can be, by faith and trust in Jesus, raised again. And listen to what Jesus said, John 6, verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And, here's your promise, I will raise him up on the last day. Now, if Jesus had remained in that grave, and that stone had not been rolled away, and Jesus had not been raised and appeared to all those people, that promise would be meaningless to you and me. Because a guy who can't take care of himself can't take care of you and me either. But the fact of his resurrection and the firstness of his resurrection means that promise and every other promise about your afterlife and your eternity is bankable. You can count on it. By faith and trust in Jesus, Romans eight eleven says this, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Meaning the same power that was at work on and in Christ Jesus in that tomb over those three days dwells in you. And that same Spirit by that same power will do that same work in you. You can count on it. You see, because Christ was raised, we'll also be raised. The second word you might write here, a very practical word, is as Jesus was raised. As Jesus was raised, we too will be raised. Listen to Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform, listen to this, our lowly body to be like His glorious body. By the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. There's a pattern here that's telling us something, that as Jesus was raised, we too will be raised. Note, again, the resurrection of the body, first of all, is the resurrection of a body. Jesus was a body before and after the cross and His resurrection. He had a body. His body was His body. See? Touch me. I'm me. The same, yet different. Recognizable. And this is an important question. A lot of people ask, well, we know each other in heaven? Well, of course. If we know each other on earth, why would we be dumber in heaven? You say, oh, but well, we're going to be changed. Yeah, but there's a difference between changing something to something totally new and different than making something that is a gazillion times better in the sense of new. Listen, when you got saved, you got changed. Did you know that? But how many of you after the day, you got saved and maybe baptized, and, and you went home and you walked in your, and your mom said, who are you? You said, well, the old is past. Behold, all things have become new. Who are you? No, no, your mom knew you after you were saved like she did before you. Same, but different. Transformation, process, all of that we understand. But you were fundamentally, spiritually, and internally changed, different, and new the moment you trusted in Jesus. But I'll bet you the people in your life still knew who you were. And so they will after death and resurrection. Be recognizable. Now, it's true, not at first. Mary, who didn't look at him at first, in her grief... In her culture, never to look at a man in the face, thought he was the gardener. Now, by the way, ghosts don't often appear to be gardeners. She just thought he was a different man, some other man. That would explain why he was in the garden. He's the gardener. Until he called her name and said, look. And when she looked, she recognized him. So there's a body. He is recognizable. His scars were visible. Look, see my hands. See my side. Look, it's me. It was proof and evidence for Thomas the doubter to become Thomas the believer. Touch me, he said. You don't touch air. You don't touch spirit. You don't touch wind. You don't touch a ghost. You touch a body. With which, by the way, he walked on the ground on the road to Emmaus. He cooked breakfast. He ate bread. He ate fish. It didn't drop to the ground when he put it in his mouth. You couldn't see it go down his esophagus and rest in his spiritual tummy. He had a body. He walked. He walked. He talked. He touched. He was touchable. He cooked. That would be heaven. If I could cook, that that would be heavenly. And he ate. That would be heavenly. No weight gain in heaven, by the way. Did I mention that? Some of you think heaven's not going to be heaven without Diet Coke. So I think we'll have Diet Coke even though we won't need the diet in the Coke. He was present present with them, to have conversations with them, and yet he had the supernatural ability to appear at will, like through a closed and locked door or through a solid wall or to appear on the sea in the shore of Galilee miles and miles away at will. He had that ability. So same yet different. And so our resurrection body will be the same body. Listen, I want you to understand this. To truly understand and believe in the resurrection of the dead Patterned on the resurrection of Jesus Christ is to look at yourself in the mirror when you get home this afternoon and say, That's my resurrection body. It's a little Greek philosophically influenced to say, I can't wait to get rid of this body. You, look, you're not a hermit crab, you know that, right? You know, you don't get to a certain point and crawl out of your shell and, and go get a bigger, better shell. That's not what this body is my resurrection body. You say, I am totally deflated now. No, I, same meaning me, my body. I, look, I am not a soul temporary living in a physical material structure called a tent. Although Paul used that expression, he used it in the sense of this is like a tent, but when I get to glory, I'm going to have a whole house, meaning multiplied. But don't think for a minute that you aren't already living and dwelling in who you are. You're you. Now, you might be a dichotomist, you might be a trichotomist. Whatever you are, don't deny the fact that you are who you are. Try living without your body for a day. And you will quickly discover that, in fact, you are your body. But here's the cool thing. God's going to take not much and make something glorious of it. Listen to how Randy Alcorn in the book Heaven, which I love, says, Conversion does not mean eliminating the old but transforming it. Despite the radical changes that occur through salvation, death, and resurrection, we remain who we are. We have the same history, appearance, memory, interest, skills. Jesus did, and we'll be like he is. This is a principle of redemptive continuity. God will not scrap his original creation and start over. Instead, he will take what his fallen, corrupted children and restore, refresh, and renew us to our original design. That's resurrection, folks. So the same, in a sense, yet different. Look at verse 42. Maybe we can close this thought. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Not spirit, but spiritual body. Do you see to read those words again imperishable because it's incorruptible glorified therefore a glorious body you have a glorious body in your future when was the last time someone said you have a glorious body huh when was the last time you looked in the mirror and said what a glorious body <laughs> no not lately it's probably for the best we would think something else of you if you said look at me what a glorious body we, we would think something else. But let me tell you, what God has in your future is a truly, glor- meaning glory-filled, glorying, glorifying, glorified, that reflects the creative genius and the bright image of our Creator God. Glorified body. Powerful no longer weak and frail as we are now, spiritual, fit for heaven that will last forever. Alcorn said it this way, they are the same bodies God created for us, but they'll be raised to greater perfection than we've ever known. So because he was raised, we'll be raised. And as he was raised, we'll be raised. And lastly, since he was raised, shouldn't we live as those who will live forever? Doesn't this make a difference today? Isn't this more than just what's on the other side of the grave and life as we know it? Shouldn't our life today be informed? I think Paul would agree. Verse 53, notice what he says. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, from the Old Testament, by the way, Death is swallowed up in victory, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? So now we're back on this side of the grave, thinking about our impending demise, our death. Paul says, the sting of death is sin. It's lost its stinger because of the cross and the empty tomb and the resurrection. And the power of sin is the law, which has been perfectly fulfilled measured in every way in Christ so that his righteousness is now our righteousness. Verse 57, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory. Already we have the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Since he was raised, don't fear a defeated foe. It's already beaten. Live with a faithful focus on forever. We're already living that life now in Christ. And keep forever in mind for your future. And remember, forever is why we're here now. It really is all that matters, after all. And in the end, it'll all be worth it all. Why? Well, wait for it, because the best is yet to come. Maybe you know the story of the lady who met with her pastor to plan her funeral. You say, no, that's just a story. No, truly, this happens a lot. Sometimes we meet with people who want to plan other people's funerals. That's a bit weird, especially if they're not dead yet. But a lady met with her pastor and said, I I want to go ahead and lay all this out now so that you nor my children have to worry about it, and I want it to be exactly this way. She picked the song. She picked the scripture. She talked about who would speak when and where. And then she said, I have one final request, preacher. He said, yes, ma'am. She said, I want you to put a fork right here when I'm laid out there in that box. I want a fork right here. Now, he was with her right up until the whole fork in the pocket thing. And he said, uh, okay, but i I got to know more about that. She said, well, you know, haven't you ever been to a family reunion? Haven't you ever been to a big cookout? Haven't you ever had Thanksgiving meal with your family? And, and, and then they start to clear the table. And as they're starting to clear the table... The matriarch says, now keep your fork. Keep your fork. She said, now, preacher, have you ever heard? And he said, well, yes, ma'am. And she said, well, what did that say to you? If your mother or grandmother said, keep the fork. He said, oh, well, that was a clear sign that there was more. Keep your fork, there's more. And in fact, the best is yet to come. Hey, folks. Hey. Keep your fork. There's more afterlife for you. If you are in Christ. Only if you were in Christ. Thanks so much for joining us today. We pray that the truth of God's word is both encouraging and uplifting to you. If you'd like more information about our church, service times, or locations, or if you have a question about what you heard today and you want to connect with someone, I want to encourage you to visit us on our website at championforest.org. Have a great day, and God bless.